So we, we are in this um, season thinking about um, where we're called to be and do and live as a church. And um, I, I keep coming back to this um, particular film that I think speaks to our situation a little bit and speaks to my experience of this COVID pandemic. And I'm going to show you a clip from that film. And it's got, um, it's just really brilliant. Um, one of the great movies of my childhood, maybe hasn't aged as well, but it was great when I was a kid. Uh, there's a wonderful one-liner in this. There's a great setup for a sequel, uh, but also you're going to hear the name of the film, okay? So if you haven't seen this before, hopefully you have. If you haven't seen this before, see if you can pick out the name of the film as you watch this little clip. Gotta come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Wait a minute, what are you doing, Doc? I need fuel. Go ahead, quick! Get in the car! No, 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 look, Doc, I just got here, okay? Jennifer's here. We're gonna take the new truck for a spin. Well, bring her along. This concerns her, too. Wait a minute, Doc. What are you talking about? Now, what happens to us in the future? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you and Jennifer both turn out fine. It's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Like the Borean? <laughs> Okay, I got to go and watch the rest of that film. Um, that movie's called Back to the Future. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I, I, I keep coming back to Back to the Future because um, it's what I find myself saying most often in this COVID season, right? I keep saying, I can't wait till we can get back to normal, right? I want to get back to normal. I want to get back to having in-person Sunday school, and I want to get back to shaking people's hands and singing in service, and I want to get back to doing mission trips. I can't wait to get back to normal. And yet I don't know, unless you have a flying DeLorean, I don't know that you can back into the future. Uh, and so uh, I've really been thinking in this season that perhaps we're called in, instead to, to do something different, to think differently about this season and um, where Christ is calling us to go and, and to be and to do. Um, maybe it's not about going back. Maybe it's about going forward. So I've been thinking a little bit about state mottos. I, I came from Virginia, and the state motto of Virginia is Sic Semper Tyrannis, which of course is Latin for Virginia is for lovers. No, that's not true. It's, it's, Latin, uh, it's Latin for thus always to tyrants, right? Um, and, and I remember being very proud of my state motto as a kid. And, and I came to Wisconsin. I discovered that your state motto was on Wisconsin. No, that's not right either. Forward, forward. And I remember thinking, ah, forward, that's cool. But six simper tyrannus is a lot better. Um, I'm not so sure anymore. I wonder if forward isn't exactly what God calls us to in this season, right? I wonder if forward isn't exactly where God calls us to go. And so I, I come back to this passage in Philippians. 
where Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of Christ Jesus, right? And I think, yeah, that's, that's what we should do. It's not about going back to normal. It's about straining forward to what lies ahead. So that's what I want to think about this, this kind of year is what um, that movement of God looks like for us. Uh, and in this particular season, as we're reading the, the book of Ruth, I want to talk about moving forward from past to future moving forward from past to future. And, and I'm going to begin by saying, I don't know what forward to the future looks like, um, but, I, but I have a sense of where it begins. And I think forward to the future begins with a decision to not turn back, right? To not turn back. So that's what I think this first chapter of the book of Ruth is all about. It's about not turning back. So to understand what's happening in Ruth, it's helpful to know a little bit about the experience of being a, a widow, especially a widow without children, in the ancient world. So if you're a widow without children in the ancient world, you really only have three possible opportunities for a future. Uh, the first is you can return to the home of your parents, right? And that's what Ruth encourages, uh, I'm sorry, what Naomi encourages Ruth and Orpah to do, right? Go back to the home of your mother. Because they're family, they'll take you in. The second thing you can do is you can get remarried. And again, Ruth encourages the, 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 her daughters-in-law to do this as well, right? Uh, to go back to your husbands. Not that they have husbands alive, but that they should go find them. Right? And the, the only really remaining option other than returning to your family's home or getting remarried if you're a widow in the ancient world is taking up some kind of craft or trade. And that's much more difficult to do than we imagine, right? Because there's no capital and there's no training. And so it, it's tough to pull off. So put yourself in Naomi's shoes for a moment. Put aside just for now the tragedy of losing both her husband and both of her sons. What does she have to look forward to? She says herself she's too old to remarry, which probably means she's past childbearing age. Right? She won't get remarried because any man who's going to get married is looking to have kids, most likely. And because she's too old to get remarried, she's probably also outlived her parents. Probably has no family to return to. And she's obviously destitute, so she has no capital to start a new business. So, so Ruth's, uh, uh, Naomi's situation, by any human standard, is one without a future. And so when she encourages Orpah and Ruth to return to their parents' homes, she's doing them a kindness. I mean, she's saying, there's no future with me. If you go with me into a land of strangers, you will have a hard time finding a spouse there. You have no family there. We can't start a trade together. You should stay here. You should go back to your family's homes. You should get remarried. There's a future for you, but there's no future for me. And so uh, Naomi quite literally turns back, right? Turns back to her past, returns to her homeland. And in the midst of this um, kind of dark beginning, we do start getting these glimpses of, of future promise. And so we have here, uh, just as a throwaway line, that the Lord remembered and considered His people and gave them food. And so there's there's this sense that maybe there's more of a future than Naomi realizes. But as she speaks to Ruth and Orpah, I hope you notice this, four times 
she tells them to turn back. Four times, she says, go back, each of you, to your mother's house. She says, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. And then finally to Ruth, return after your sister-in-law. And she does everything she can to take care of them, right? Even though it means she will be completely alone um, when she reaches Israel. She uses logic and reason and common sense. She uses um, her, her best uh, theology, says, God's angry at me, don't be with me, because then God might be angry at you. She does everything she can to convince them to turn around, to go back. And perhaps that's why Ruth's response is so dramatic. Right? Perhaps that's why for thousands of years we've been repeating these words as the epitome of, of faithfulness and devotion. Ruth says, Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be your, my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. See, I, I think as we consider what it means to go forward into a future with God, it begins here, right? It begins with a, a commitment to, to not go back to where we came from. Uh, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of um, Elijah and Elisha. Um, one's got a J, one's got an S, okay? Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah is the great prophet of his day. In fact, so significant that he shows up in the New Testament and he's just a big deal, okay? And Elisha is his apprentice. And there's a point in the story um, in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings where uh, God comes to Elijah and he says, hey, I want you to go find Elisha and recruit him to be your disciple, to be your replacement. Uh, and so he goes and he finds him. And when he comes on Elisha, he's plowing his field with a pair of oxen, okay? And Elijah comes up and says, hits him with his mantle and he says, you know, come follow me. Um, and then he starts walking off. It's really the worst recruitment pitch I've ever seen, right? It's just, we're out. Uh, and Elisha, with an S, Elisha says, wait a minute, just, just give me a minute. And Elijah's like, no, that's fine. Don't even worry about it. I changed my mind already. Elijah's like, no, 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 just wait for me. And he goes back, uh, and as a, a symbol of his complete devotion to this new cause, right, he takes the, the two oxen that he'd been plowing his field with, and he slaughters them as a sacrifice to God. He takes the plow he'd been plowing his field with, and he burns it as part of the sacrifice. And then he kisses his parents, and he leaves and becomes the prophet's disciple. And I love this moment because he says, I'm not going to hedge my bets, right? It's not like, I'll try this, this disciple thing, but if it doesn't work out, I'm going to come back to farming. He kills the oxen and he burns the plow, right? Uh, and it's the ultimate example of saying, there's no going back for me, only forward with God. Uh, so many examples in history of this. I think about, um, though he's certainly not a hero of mine, uh, I think about Hernan Cortez in 1519 when uh, he lands his ships and they're looking for Tenochtitlan and he's got this Spanish army and the men are considering going back or mutinying. And so what does he do? He, he burns the ships so they can't leave. So the only way is forward. 
And I believe this is really critical for us as the people of God. The power of a wholehearted commitment to go forward into God's future begins with the decision to eliminate the option to turn back. I believe there are elements in your life that are calling you backwards into your past. I believe there are friendships that were once meaningful but now represent the life you want to leave behind. I believe there are fears that have debilitated you and kept you and me from pursuing the future that God had designed for us. I believe there are lies you have been told uh, that you're too old or too young or too broken or too inexperienced that it would be safer if you just stayed here, turned back, gave up, that you are not enough. And I think if we want to march forward with God, the first thing we have to do is to burn the plow, right? To say, I'm not going back to any of that stuff. All that stuff that has held me back in the past is going to be my past, and I'm going to turn to the future. I'm going to eliminate the option to turn back. I'm going to burn the plow. It's not just enough to turn our back to the past. Um, However, I think sometimes um, a commitment to not turn back also means not turning back to our pain. And I want to be careful with this, um, but but I think this is important. We have to be committed to not turning back to our pain. Uh, Naomi and Ruth um, have a really incredible story together, and it begins with all kinds of pain. And I can't imagine the experience of losing my spouse, much less losing my spouse and both of my children. Um, and, and, and so when Naomi comes home and people say, oh my gosh, we remember you. It's been, it's been over a decade, but we remember you. We're, we're glad you're back, Naomi. She says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Right? She says, no, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Uh, and, and she is overwhelmingly clear that her life has become bitter and empty. I went away full, but came back empty. And, and I want to be careful. I, I do not want to diminish the significance of what she's been through. I don't want to belittle the pain of our past, but I also think we can't be defined by that pain either. And, and it occurs to me that when she says, I, I, I came back empty, she's wrong, right? She's wrong. She has lost her sons, but she has quite literally gained a daughter. This woman who, for no logical reason in her culture, has such incredible devotion to her mother-in-law that she has bound her future up with a woman who has no future. And, and, and I don't know if you noticed this, but as Ruth talks about her story, what happened to her, to the people of her hometown, she says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has dealt harshly with me and brought calamity upon me. Not once does she say we, right? Both she and Ruth lost husbands. But, but her pain has resulted in her becoming kind of self-absorbed, right? It, it, it has resulted in her curving inward. Uh, and and the, the, this is a risk that we can have as well, that suffering can toss, draw us to look inward only. Um, and, and I believe part of the challenge of being a people of God is to say that even in sorrow, turning back can result in a life of bitterness. That, that you are more than the hurt that has been done to you, that you are more than the wounds you've inflicted on yourself, 
uh, and that God calls you forward into something that might even be redemptive of that very pain that seems to consume you. And I think this is critical for us, um, that we have to let go of our past so we can grab our future. So I I mentioned earlier um, that uh, the song and the motto on Wisconsin, right? The the Madison um, marching song and actually our state song as well. And um, I don't know if you are uh, all aware of this. I wasn't. There's an interesting story about where that phrase on Wisconsin came from. So uh, there was a guy, actually I've got a picture of him. Can you put that picture up, Drew? Um, This is a guy named Arthur MacArthur Jr. That's really his name. It's Arthur MacArthur. I don't know if his middle name was Art or not. I hope not. But anyway, um, Arthur MacArthur Jr. was a Wisconsinite. And in 1863, he was commissioned as a first lieutenant of the 24th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry in the Civil War. His regiment uh, was sent down and was involved in um, the Chattanooga campaign um, near the battle or in the Battle of Missionary Ridge on November 25th. Actually, I've got a picture of Missionary Ridge too. Can you put that up? Um, This is where that battle took place. Uh, They were storming Confederate defenses. The Confederates were on the top of the hill. The Union troops were charging up it into a, a, a hail of gunfire. And it looked as though they were going to have to retreat back down the ridge. There was, it looked like there was no way they could take this, this, this hill. And um, the Union was a little disorganized, to put it gently. In those days, there was a soldier um, who had to, uh, called the standard bearer who had to carry the regiment's flag. And they ordinarily carried it in front of the battle, right there in front of their soldiers. They're on the front line carrying the flag of the regiment. Uh, unbelievably dangerous position. And the standard bearer for the 24th Wisconsin volunteer was killed. And in that moment, Arthur MacArthur Jr. dropped his weapon and picked up the flag um, of his unit, which had come all the way from Milwaukee. And he grabbed it and he yelled, on Wisconsin. And he charged the hill. He was shot twice before he made it to the top where he planted the flag right in the middle of the Confederate defenses. And his actions inspired his unit. Uh, They surged after him, as did about 15,000 more Union troops who were finally able to crush the Confederates in the center of their formation. By the day's end, the Confederacy was retreating towards Georgia, leaving Chattanooga firmly in control of the Union. Uh, Most people come back and say that this was the final significant battle in the Civil War, right? The final moment where the hopes of the Confederacy were thoroughly crushed. At the time, uh, MacArthur was promoted immediately to Lieutenant Colonel, which was a big deal for a 19-year-old. A few decades later, um, he was given the Medal of Honor. Fun fact, Um, Arthur MacArthur Jr. um, is one of a a handful of father and son pairs who both became generals in the United States Army and the first father and son pair to both receive the Medal of Honor. His son was General Douglas MacArthur. Um, You can't carry the flag forward without looking beyond yourself. You got to let go of the past so you can grab the future.
So uh, as we think about this forward movement into the future, I think, you know, absolutely we got to say, hey, there's no turning back to our past. I can't go back to who I used to be. And there's no turning back to our pain. I can't let what happened to me define who I'm becoming. But I also believe there's no turning back to the old way of faith. And this is unbelievably important, though it kind of happens as a throwaway conversation in this chapter. Um, in this incredible proclamation of faithfulness that Ruth gives to Naomi, um, there's a line where she says, your God shall be my God. And then she says, may the Lord, that's the divine name of God, may Yahweh do thus and so to me and even more if death parts me from you. Earlier, Naomi had said, look, Orpah went back to her family and to her God. You should do the same. And Ruth says, no, I'm not going back to my old God, right? Because now I'm a follower of Yahweh. Uh, this reminds me of this chapter in Philippians where Paul talks about um, the, the new understanding of God we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, hey, in the past, we understood that the way we got right with God was being good people, right? You had to follow the rules. And if you followed the rules, God would reward you. And if you broke the rules, God would punish you. And um, we just had to be righteous, right? We had to earn it. And, and, and Paul says, yeah, I had every reason to believe that, right? I had every reason to be confident in the flesh, in the rules, in myself. Um, but that's not how I think about God anymore. And, and I think um, we so easily can turn back into that old way of thinking about God, right? As Christians, unfortunately, we do this all the time. And we talk about someone being a good person, right? He's a really good person or a bad person. Just he's a bad guy. We talk about um, being Christian as though it's the same as being moral. Right? We imagine that God loves us less because we've made mistakes or more because we've made good choices. And in the face of all of that, Paul says, no, that's, that's turning back to an old way of faith. Um, but I strain forward. I have all the reason in the world to trust that old system, but I believe that it is rubbish compared to what God offers me in Jesus Christ. And this is huge, right? That that as we march forward with God, we can't get sucked back into the old ways of thinking about who he is or how he calls us to live. We've got to be so consumed with the story of Jesus, so consumed with the grace of God that, that we live it out in all that we do. In a minute, we're going to sing um, one of my favorite hymns, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Uh -huh. And I don't know, again, uh, if you know the story of that particular hymn, but it's a good one. Uh, actually, some debate about this story, but we know for sure it was written in India uh, in the northeastern part of that nation um, sometime in the early 20th century among the Garo tribe. Um, uh, it was a song of new converts that they wrote um, after they became believers. And there's a lot of debate about the history of the story, but the most famous account um, comes from a guy named Dr. P.B. Job. And Dr. Job says, uh, and whether this is true or not, this is his account, um, that there was a tribe, a, a village in the Garo tribe um, where a, a family was Christian, not the only Christians in the Garo tribe, but only Christians in this village. And one day the chieftain, um, so concerned that this new religion was threatening their old way of life, um, the, the chieftain gathered several warriors and he confronted the man and his family. And he said, if you will not renounce this faith of yours in this foreign God, then we're going to kill you because we can't have you continue to infect and corrupt our community, our village. 
And I can only imagine what ran through the mind of that family and that, that man in that moment. Um, but the story is that um, the only words he could find were the words he'd been singing again and again as a new convert to Christianity. And he looked the chieftain in the face and he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. Job says, at that point, the chieftain instructed his warriors to shoot their arrows at the sons of this Christian man. And as they lay dying before him, the chieftain looked again to this bereaved father and said, now, now you will recant your faith and remove this foreign religion from our lands. And with tears in his eyes, the father said, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. The chieftain then ordered his warriors to strike down the wife of this man. And overwhelmed with emotion, he knelt beside the bodies of his family. And the chieftain said, now, now you see the falseness of this faith. Now you will renounce Jesus. And he said, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. After the chieftain had this man executed, um, they went back to life as normal, but discovered that those murders did not have the effect that he had intended. The exemplary faith of this man and his family caused so many of those villagers there that day or who heard the story to wonder how it could be that a man who lived 2,000 years beforehand could inspire such devotion thousands of miles away from his homeland and people that were just like them. Uh, over the next few days and weeks, um, villager after villager asked questions and came to know the story of Jesus and gave their lives to Jesus until eventually even that chieftain himself came to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and so that village was forever transformed by a willingness to recognize a new faith, a faith that says that this life is not the end, a faith that says that God forgives us even in the midst of the worst possible sins you can imagine, a faith that says that our God is a God of resurrection who raises the dead and reconciles the broken and restores those who have wandered far from him and claims us still as daughters and sons. And so I believe this is the call for us as the people of God. In this particular season, we are called to look forward to God, not to turn back and to our past or our pain or our old ways of thinking about how God worked, but to strain forward and, and seek out that prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.